0: Hello and welcome to PubCasts, an ongoing project to experiment with science communication and making research more accessible and digestible to both scientific and general audiences. PubCasts are audiobook-style recordings of peer-reviewed scientific research read to you by the authors. I'm your host today, Hannah Harrison. PubCasts are inspired by a passion for podcasts, demystifying science, and the power of the human voice. Our goal is to give you, the listener, a new way to connect with research, and just as importantly, the researcher. These recordings will focus on trying to communicate a published research article in an engaging and convenient way, and I will sometimes stop to explain a concept, give a short anecdote about the research experience, or emphasize a main point. Our hope is that this format will give researchers and academics a new way to engage with the literature, and for the non-academics out there, a way to hear about new science in a more interesting and digestible way. To keep things straightforward, you won't hear the in-text citations, long acronyms, or other details that may wading through a paper more challenging. But like all peer-reviewed research, this work stands on the shoulders of researchers who came before. So I strongly encourage you to visit the paper online and see the full reference list, as well as enjoy the tables and figures that help explain some of the more interesting findings. And of course, we would love to hear your feedback. You can find our contact information in the online details of this podcast. Today's paper is called Big Catch, Undecided Risks, Perspectives of Risk, Reward, and Trade-Offs in Alaska's Salmon Enhancement Program. This paper was written by authors Hannah L. Harrison and Julie Gould. This paper was published by the North American Journal of Fisheries Management and is available online beginning in September of 2022. You can read the full text and see the affiliations and other details at the authors at the journal's website. Introduction Fisheries enhancement has played a historically important role in the development of Alaska's salmon fisheries and fisheries management, particularly within a commercial context. However, Alaska's Salmon Enhancement Program has come under increasing scrutiny due to concerns about the impacts of salmon hatcheries on salmonids and the effect of hatchery-reared salmonoids on the ecosystems into which they are released. Over the last few years, a flurry of emergent media attention around Alaska's hatchery program from both inside and outside of the state has raised questions about how hatcheries and stocking relate to Alaska's marketing claims of wild and sustainable salmon production— and about the impacts that stocking may have on salmon genetic biodiversity and ecosystem health. The profile of these issues has been raised further by the ongoing Alaska Department of Fish and Game-led study called Interactions of Wild and Hatchery Pink and Chum Salmon in Prince William Sound in Southeast Alaska, which we will refer to in this article as the STRAIN study. This study began in 2011 and is slated to conclude in 2023, although some preliminary results of the study have been released. This study also informed the 2013 Marine Stewardship Council's recertification process for Prince William Sound Salmon as concerns about interactions between hatchery and non-hatchery origin fish, the latter referred to as wild by MSC, had arisen during recertification. In addition to the strain study and the MSC recertification process, the Alaska Board of Fisheries Hatchery Committee convened in March 2019, the committee's first meeting in about a decade. Taken together, these events and public discourses point toward growing interest in Alaska's Salmon Enhancement Program. And now a few details about the salmon program overall. In 2019, there were 30 active salmon hatcheries operating in Alaska. 26 were operated by private nonprofit hatcheries, two sport fish hatcheries, which are operated by the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, one research hatchery off- operated by the National Marine Fisheries Service, and one hatchery operated by the Metlakatla Indian Community. We list here some further details about how many eggs are harvested and how many juvenile fish are released each year, as well as what the total, harvest, total commercial harvest of hatchery-produced salmon are each year and their value. Um, you can refer to this section of the paper to find those details. For now, we're going to move on to the genetics policy. Alaska's Salmon Enhancement Program was designed with a genetics policy that was considered progressive for the time in which it was first instituted. The genetics policy, along with other regulations laid out in Alaska Salmon Hatchery and Enhancement Regulations Code, makes significant efforts to protect non-hatchery salmon stocks from adverse impacts brought about by hatcheries, hatchery origin fish, or other activities occurring in the due course of hatchery fish rearing and stocking. These documents prioritize the temporal and spatial separation of hatchery and non-hatchery runs, lay out specific measures under which new hatcheries and stocking programs could be initiated, and give standards against which the permitting of new hatcheries shall be evaluated. Under current law, quote, proposed hatchery returns may not unreasonably or adversely affect management of natural stocks, end quote. This policy of avoiding adverse impacts on non-hatchery origin stocks also reflects intent language within the original 1974 Private Nonprofit Authorization Act, which states that the enhancement program shall be operated without adversely affecting natural stocks of fish in the state and under a policy of management which allows reasonable segregation of returning hatchery-reared salmon from naturally occurring stocks put simply, the guiding sentiment of avoiding adverse impacts to non-hatchery origin fish is a strong thread throughout the regulatory machinery of Alaska's Salmon Enhancement Program. Now, within the scientific literature, there are several key debates that are relevant to Alaska's Salmon Enhancement Program, and these debates can be broadly grouped into several overlapping categories. One, the efficacy of hatcheries, that is, whether they are producing a cost-effective harvestable population of salmon. Two, the impacts of hatcheries on fish biology, physiology, and genetics. Three, the impact of hatchery-produced fish on their ecosystem and other species. And four, the impact of hatchery-produced fish on coastal community economies and seafood markets. Now, in this section of the paper, we provide a brief overview of literature that discusses some of the biological, ecological, and genetic concerns and social discussions around these topics. And we focus primarily on Pacific salmon and the Gulf of Alaska or Pacific Ocean region. This overview is intended to provide the reader with a general, but not comprehensive, sense of the critiques of hatcheries and stocking programs. Now as this article takes a critical approach to the existing Alaska Salmon Enhancement Program, we intentionally focus this overview on critiques of hatcheries and stocking programs. However, I want to note that the hatchery debate itself is in the scientific literature and includes a number of publications that challenge the critiques that we present in this section, and we list a number of them here. And the hatchery debate should be acknowledged as ongoing, and it includes degrees of complexity and place-based nuance that this overview specifically doesn't capture. All that said, we provide this literature overview because it's important context for many of the topics that are raised by interview participants within this study. And while I'm not going to go into uh, lots of depth in reading it for you now, I will touch on the last paragraph of this, and that is around the social aspects of hatcheries. While the literature around biological, ecological, and genetic topics in hatchery and stocking practices tends to coalesce around critique and concern, the human dimensions literature offers a different perspective on hatcheries. Previous research on the social aspects of hatcheries and stocking within the Alaskan context has often focused on economic aspects, such as the value of hatchery-reared fish to the Alaskan economy. However, research elsewhere has found that social and cultural values and attitudes toward fish can be facilitated through hatchery programs, and that perceptions of of the wildness or artificiality of salmon can be derived from paradoxes of policy and technological approaches to conservation, as well as relationships with food. Now, currently, there is limited research exploring the human and policy dimensions of Alaska's Salmon Enhancement Program, although we do list a few options, or whether the program meets its stated objectives. As the Alaska Department of Fish and Game strain study has already released some results with more data to come in the following years, the time for understanding social perceptions and values around Alaska's Salmon Enhancement Program is now. This study acknowledges these multifaceted debates around hatcheries and asks the following, What perspectives are informing the emergent and potentially contentious discussion around Alaska's Salmon Enhancement Program? The goals of this article are to lay out those perspectives through analysis of qualitative interviews with key knowledge holders and public comments from the Board of Fish Hatchery Committee, and to compare publicly versus privately expressed perceptions of stocking from those data sources. We discuss these themes within the context of enhancement policy and ongoing research into wild hatchery-salmon interactions, both of which pose certain constraints on how trade-offs between social, ecological, and economic valuation of the enhancement program can be made, Finally, we highlight key concerns and steps forward for enhancement program policymakers, researchers, and other power holding stakeholders to consider in directing research and policy making in future years. We now get to the methods and while I won't read the methods in their entirety, I'll make a few remarks about what we did. So in this study, we interviewed key knowledge holders who are closely linked through their professional or personal activities to Alaska's Salmon Enhancement Program. We also looked at public public comments made to the Board of Fisheries as part of the 2019 Hatchery Committee meeting. These two data sets were supplemented by ethnographic approaches during the interview period, as well as a scan of publicly available documents related to hatcheries, stocking, and the Salmon Enhancement Program. Taking together these data sources allowed us to build a broad understanding of perceptions of the Alaska Salmon Enhancement Program. Interviews were sought using the snowball method and key informant methods Um, and provided us a rich and in-depth understanding of perspectives on the salmon enhancement program as held by those who know something about it. I want to note here that we approached this study with the goal of identifying perspectives on Alaska's salmon enhancement program and illuminating these perspectives, if any, that were not previously part of the scientific literature or public discourses on this topic. In this, our work is not designed to identify any singular truth or reality, but rather to add complexity and richness to existing hatchery dialogues by embedding them in the complex socio-cultural landscape that surrounds hatcheries and stocking programs in Alaska. We bring a critical lens to this work by critiquing existing policymaking and decision-making models and probing the representations of public and private sentiments of stocking. Our goals here are not simply to challenge the status quo. This work is sensitive, which was reflected to us by multiple interview participants. And we want to offer our respect to those who have labored for generations, and in the case of indigenous peoples since time immemorial, on the forefront of Alaska's salmon fisheries, conservation, and management, including in enhancement programs. Overall, we are interested in progressing the Alaskan hatchery debate by adding needed human dimensions data to Alaska hatchery conversations and to the debate more broadly within the scientific literature. As such, we seek to contribute to preparing Alaska's Salmon Enhancement Program for the social and ecological challenges that are to come. Uh, A few more words on nomenclature. Throughout this study, we use various iterations of the phrases Alaska's Salmon Enhancement Program and the Enhancement Program to refer to Alaska's formal hatchery and stocking program for Pacific salmon. We acknowledge that the term enhancement may be controversial to some readers and listeners as a central tenant of the hatchery debate is whether hatchery programs successfully enhance existing wild salmon stocks as opposed to replacing wild fish or generating other effects. In this article, we follow Alaska Department of Fish and Game's nomenclature of the Alaska Salmon Enhancement Program and commonly, the common use by Alaskans of the Enhancement Program, which we heard often during this study. Our use of this word enhancement does not reflect our own views on hatchery efficacy. We also interchangeably use the phrases hatchery fish or hatchery origin fish or hatchery reared fish to indicate salmon that for any portion of their life cycle were spawned or reared in a hatchery setting. Conversely, we interchangeably use non-hatchery fish and non-hatchery origin fish to describe salmon that have not spent any part of their life cycle in the hatchery environment, With respect to the non-hatchery origin fish, we intentionally choose not to refer to these fish as wild or natural, though they are frequently labeled as such in many of the references cited in this article. This is because we find the terminology around fish origin to be heavily contextual and politicized within this case study, and we find internal conflict even within ourselves about how fish origin should be or is determined. And finally, we take note of the ongoing debate about gender-inclusive terms to describe the many, many gender identities that take part in harvest of seafood, and we believe that the most appropriate term is dependent on the varied geographies, cultures, and traditions of a place. In this article, we follow the preference of the North American Journal of Fisheries Management by using fish harvester to describe study participants who were engaged in commercial fish harvest, inclusive of all sexes and gender identities. We'll now get into the results and discussion. Analysis of the interviews and Board of Fish public comments revealed a wide range of perspectives, both critical and supportive of Alaska's Salmon Enhancement Program. However, a handful of key themes emerged from both data sets, and consistently within them were the following, ecological issues, economics, social and cultural well-being, governance of fisheries and the Enhancement Program, communities, and the role and process of science in salmon management. While we present these themes as discrete discussion points here, we note that due to the linked social ecological system in which these themes are embedded, there are some theme descriptions that share relevance to other themes in this section, Um, for example, market and non-market value and governance. Between the two datasets, there was a notable difference in how topics were presented. As compared to interview content, Board of Fish public comments were generally focused on just four quantifiable issues market and non market values, the role of science, ecological impacts and perceptions of risk, and the governance of the enhancement program. By comparison, topics raised in the interviews were wider-ranging and frequently touched upon less easily quantified concepts, such as ideas of wildness or cultural attachment to salmon. This could be indicative of the Board of Fish comment process being unsuitable to express the more complex ideas or discussions heard in our interviews, or possibly suggest that people believe that comments to the Board of Fish are more effective if they primarily address economic or ecological considerations. More broadly, another reason for this difference in subject matter may be that border fish comments are public and often attributed, though comments may be submitted anonymously, whereas comments in interviews were made under conditions of anonymity. As mentioned previously, some participants in this study were concerned about expressing views critical of hatcheries, even under such conditions, and some were only willing to speak off the record. Regardless of the underlying reason, this finding indicates that the public comment process is only capturing a portion of the public discourse around salmon enhancement. Now, I'll note here that as I go through the results, uh, we do not present very many quotes within the actual paper and rather have appended them as a table called Table 1, and I really encourage you to go look there as there's some really great comments from Board of Fish comments as well as from interviews. We're now in the section called Overlapping Themes from Alaska Board of Fisheries' Comments and Interviews. In this section, we present themes that emerged concurrently in both Board of Fish comments and in our interview data. Market and Non-Market Value. The economics of stocking, including market values, were raised by most interview participants and in many Board of Fish comments. Within Board of Fish comments, commenters from all stakeholder groups remarked on how hatchery-produced fish benefit a variety of users, which includes different gear types and user groups. These comments were often framed as justifying the cost of hatchery production as well as supporting local economies or household food costs, Individual harvesters frequently remarked that hatchery fish were essential to their fishing operations and to supporting, quote, family fisheries, unquote, and that without hatchery fish, they would likely not be able to afford to fish or their seasons would go bust more frequently due to comparatively low non-hatchery origin fish returns. Catching a significant volume of fish was identified by commenters from multiple stakeholder groups as a key feature of successful fisheries, particularly during years with low runs or low prices. All interview participants acknowledged that hatchery origin fish produce significant value to Alaska's economy, particularly for small coastal communities where proceeds for salmon fishing are a substantial portion of the local incomes. However, some participants raised critiques about the expensive hatchery operations and the ratio of fish produced that were available for common property harvest versus cost recovery or broodstock brood collection. As an example, some hatcheries, particularly those in southeast Alaska, reported that up to 80% of hatchery fish produced were being harvested by commercial fleets. Other hatcheries, particularly those in Cook Inlet, were criticized by some commenters and interviewees for having a smaller ratio of fish produced available for common property harvest. Both public commenters and interviewees raised concerns about the usage of Alaska's public land and water resources to produce hatchery fish for the perceived benefit of primarily one user group, which was commercial fisheries. Although private nonprofit hatcheries are primarily funded by taxes that are self levied on and by the commercial fishing industry, some participants took issue with any public dollars, land, or other resources that hatcheries may utilize, believing them to unfairly benefit commercial fish harvesters above other user groups. Some interview participants also expressed concern about whether hatcheries are economically viable in the long term, particularly in the context of climate change and water availability. This is particularly true of hatcheries that experienced a past cultivation failure, such as a fish kill. However, commenters and interviewees who advocated for hatcheries pushed back on that notion, arguing that hatchery fish are available to and benefit all user groups to some extent, Hatchery supporters also emphasized that aquaculture associations participate in in and fund activities outside of fish production that are beneficial to all fisheries, such as ecological data collection and conservation work in places where significant ecological impacts or barriers have hindered salmon propagation or rearing. Interview participants from the fish processing sector described hatcheries as important to allowing processors to make sound investments and enjoy a more predictable business environment, which they cited as an ongoing challenge for processors in some areas of the state. As some interviewees explained, having hatcheries allowed processors to count on some sure-thing fisheries and to have processing facilities in places that without hatcheries would not be economically justifiable. The role of Science Remarks and public comments and interviews, both supporting and criticizing the, pub- the hatchery program, frequently drew upon science, or lack thereof, as the arbiter of whether hatcheries were potentially harmful. Some participants reflected beliefs that hatcheries are operated and managed under best available science, a phrase that defines Alaska Department of Fish and Game's approach to fisheries management, and they argued that no evidence produced from studies conducted in Alaska had yet conclusively proven hatcheries to be problematic. These participants tended to reject or downplay the critiques of hatchery impact studies conducted in non-Alaskan contexts, arguing that the conclusions of those studies did not apply to Alaska's stocking practices. The role of science and how research is and will be used to direct the enhancement program emerged frequently in both interviews and comments, with the ongoing strain study as a source of both confidence and anxiety. Many people were hesitant to talk about possible ecological criticisms of hatcheries without empirical data, saying things like, Let's wait and see what the science says. Some commenters and interviewees cited the need to wait until, quote, the science is in, end quote, before making decisions and stated that, quote, science, not public opinion, end quote, must direct hatchery policy. Others raised concerns that waiting for study results would create more politicized turmoil. With respect to how scientific information would be received by user groups, most most participants expressed confidence that Alaskans, particularly fish harvesters and fish processors, would act in the best interest of salmon should hatcheries be found to cause adverse impacts, and that stakeholders would be willing to collectively take the quote, right, unquote, action, even if the right action is difficult or costly. Right actions were broadly described as actions that might come at the cost of economic gain, but otherwise were not well-defined across data sets. Conversely, some interview participants feared loss of economic production and livelihoods if hatcheries or stocking were found to be curtailed. Summarizing one participant's comments, Quote, there is infinite demand for a finite resource, end quote, and the, quote, first priority should be sharing the burden of conservation, end quote, between user groups. Many participants across stakeholder groups acknowledge that fisheries managers are making decisions in a state of uncertainty, particularly with respect to climate change. Some commented that it would be difficult to know whether observed negative effects of hatcheries on the environment were a one-off or a new normal, and that some Questions about stocking impacts would be practically impossible to answer in a reasonable time frame. These comments point to a tension between public expectations to manage with scientific certainty and the limitations of scientific inquiry. Tensions also arose concerning the production of science. Both commenters and interviewees raised critiques about the makeup of the Alaska Salmon Research Program Science Panel, which henceforth we'll call the Science Panel, which is tasked with designing and guiding the strain study. Participants noted that individuals with a vested interest in enhancement program success sit on the science panel, calling into question potential conflicts of interest in the scientific advice that may be given by the panel. Only a few science panel members were considered to be appropriately objective by those participants who raised this issue. Ecological Impacts and Perceptions of Risk The impact of hatcheries on both nearshore and Pacific Ocean ecologies was raised frequently by both board of fish commenters and interviewees, indicating mixed perceptions of risk among study participants. Some key themes that arose include concern about the scale of hatchery operations, location of hatcheries, cumulative impacts of hatchery-origin fish on freshwater and marine environments, climate change, strain, and sustainability. Across both datasets, participants argued that hatchery produced fish reduced pressure on non hatchery runs when those stocks were low, and that hatchery produced fish compensated for events that negatively impacted non hatchery stocks. Some stated that hatcheries allowed for diversified fishing seasons, as hatchery runs could be counted upon to supplement other less reliable fisheries and could take pressure off the more sensitive fish stocks. With respect to climate change, hatcheries were viewed by some commenters as a buffer, arguing that they would stabilize fish stocks as environmental conditions change. Some participants expressed concern about the impacts of hatcheries on the surrounding environment, such as broodstock carcass disposal, waste accumulation, and dissolved oxygen depletion resulting from concentrations of fish in net pens, and the potential impact of large volumes of stocked fish on ecosystems where they may compete with or outcompete native inhabitants. Conversely, other interviewees observed that hatchery fish may be contributing to more robust wildlife, particularly megafauna such as seals and whales in the marine environment. They believe that the the releases of hatchery juvenile salmon created an enhanced concentration of food for other species, drawing more wildlife to those areas, supporting ecotourism development and improving opportunities for seafood harvest. The strain study again rose as a point of interest in most interviews, with participants frequently pointing to it as an example of research that could help to clarify the ecological risks posed by hatcheries. However, the manner in which the results of the strain study would be used was unclear to many participants. Some raised the point that there were no clear delineations in existing stocking policy about what is considered a tolerable level of strain or other interactions between hatchery and non-hatchery-origin fish. They linked this problem to the various ways in which people might interpret risk to the environment or non-hatchery salmon populations, and the different degrees to which that risk is tolerated. Both commenters and interviewees felt that strain was a natural phenomenon, and thus the strain of hatchery fish should not be considered a problem. However, some interviewees were disturbed by unusual events involving salmon that were later identified as hatchery origin strays. Other participants equated record runs and harvests of salmon as indicative of stocking program success and believed the continued presence of salmon to indicate the well-being of non-hatchery salmon stocks as a whole. As one participant described, quote, I always appreciate the criticism because it forces us to self-scrutinize and it makes sure we are doing the best job we can. Anything like this, any hatchery type program, anytime you're dealing with wild, there's an inherent risk that you could do something harmful. We always want to be continually scrutinizing, continually challenging to see if there's anything we can do better. But I find it pretty hard to reconcile the rhetoric that says we're causing the extinction of wild salmon with the record-setting wild harvests that we've had concurrent with our hatchery production in places with some of our largest hatchery production, end quote. Finally, some participants expressed concern about the impact of Alaska's high hatchery volume in cumulation with the stocking outputs of other Pacific Rim nations. Their comments revolved around the carrying capacity of the North Pacific Ocean to support stocked fish in addition to non-hatchery fish and other marine life. They expressed concern that hatcheries may exacerbate the impacts of climate change by creating additional stress on these these environments through, quote, artificial, end quote, abundances of salmon. Governance, politics, and management. Despite the concerns raised above, both commenters and interviewees viewed Alaska's Salmon Enhancement Program as being well-managed on best available science, with commenters frequently praising the management and governance of Alaska's salmon stocks and fisheries and citing abundant returns and MSC certification of some stocks as indicators of sustainability. Many study participants praised the program's genetics policy, and they believed that the enhancement program had been well designed and avoided many of the ecological pitfalls of hatchery programs elsewhere in North America. Some participants argued that until definite harm from hatcheries is proven, policy changes around hatcheries are are unwarranted. The precautionary approach or principle, which in these terms were used interchangeably often, was cited by critical commenters as an important approach to managing hatcheries without perfect information, and they expressed concern that this approach had, in their view, not been followed. However, not all participants were confident in the governance of salmon enhancement, some participants expressed concern that hatcheries had been irrecoverably embedded in salmon management and questioned whether management agencies, such as the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, were able to have open, transparent, and constructive conversations about the role of hatcheries in Alaskan salmon fisheries. For example, some participants Reported having a difficult time getting questions, concerns, or critiques of hatcheries heard or acted upon by ADFNG staff and at public meetings where fish harvesters who benefit from hatcheries were present. They described experiences of being shouted down or talked over by hatchery supporters when critiques were raised. Some expressed perceptions of ADFNG rubber stamping hatchery projects and supporting hatcheries as a management norm. Multiple interviewees also reported concerns that adf employees involved with hatcheries were not free to voice critique of the Enhancement Program or hatchery-related specific projects without facing consequences from within the department. Those participants familiar with the Enhancement Program's guiding policies raised the question of how management should respond, or is permitted to respond, should hatchery fish be found to create adverse impacts on non-hatchery stocks. Some participants were concerned that due to the dichotomous nature of the stocking policy language, that is, it's saying, without adverse impact, policymakers will be forced into a politically unpopular position if the strange study shows negative impacts of hatchery fish on non-hatchery fish reproduction or a lack lack of reasonable segregation between the two groups. Some participants worried that hatcheries were growing contentious in some regions, most notably Cook Inlet, which has been home to virulent and ongoing fisheries conflicts. These participants were concerned about existing power struggles in the region, particularly that sport fishery lobbies might put pressure on hatcheries as a means of gaining leverage against local commercial fleets, potentially affecting hatcheries throughout the state. Interestingly, advocacy groups that had previously aligned themselves together on important environmental or political issues reported realigning their relationships when it came to hatcheries due to the many ecological, political, and economic concerns being raised at the time of this study. These political undercurrents of hatcheries were of deep concern to some participants who feared that hatchery issues would become too deeply polarized to address in a sound and scientific manner. Some participants also expressed concern that Alaska's Salmon Enhancement Program has concentrated leadership with a limited number of people making decisions that have widespread impacts. Multiple participants commented that the hatchery community is small and that the same groups of people tend to rotate in and out of positions of power in decision-making. Some participants complained that pro-hatchery discourses tend to absorb media and public attention, and that there is a lack of meaningful channels by which critical voices can be heard and taken seriously. We'll now move on to the section where we talk about themes that were found only in our qualitative interviews. Our first theme, Ideas of Nature and Human-Environment Interactions. Participants expressed, often implicitly, multiple attitudes toward the human-salmon-hatchery relationship, and how humans should be allowed to interact with, support, or conserve salmon populations. Referring to hatchery activities, some participants questioned whether people should be, quote, messing around, end quote, with what they viewed as an already abundant and healthy salmon resource. Others saw hatcheries as an appropriate means of interacting with nature and as a way of enacting care for the salmon resource. Some participants raised the idea that Alaskan salmon were, quote, their fish, and that Alaskans should make the most of them through enhancement. Most participants did not distinguish between hatchery and non-hatchery salmon in conversation or in practice, in some cases citing that they observed no phenotypic difference between hatchery and non-hatchery origin fish. Others had a more nuanced view of where wild and artificial might be delineated, or questioned the value of delineation at all. Embedded within this theme were also attitudes toward wildness. Some participants questioned whether hatchery fish should really be considered wild, given the prohibition on commercial finfish aquaculture in the state of Alaska. They questioned how different the sea ranching system really is from net pen aquaculture, and whether touting Alaska seafood as, quote, wild and sustainable was appropriate, given how much of Alaska's salmon production originates from hatcheries. Placed face exceptionalism. As previously mentioned, we observed a decoupling of research conducted outside of Alaska and its applicability to the Alaskan context. Related to this was the perception that various problems linked to non-Alaskan hatchery programs would not apply to similar contexts in Alaska due to the original design of the enhancement program, which was still viewed to be progressive. Some participants coined this as an Alaskan exceptionalism, and In our term, we call it place-based exceptionalism, which reflected a view that Alaska's hatchery program is fundamentally different than hatchery programs elsewhere, is better designed, and thus is less vulnerable or even impervious to the problems identified in other locales. This theme was prevalent as a source of certainty for hatchery supporters and as a source of contention and occasional frustration for those study participants with critical views of hatcheries. Hatcheries and Coastal Communities Multiple participants noted the important roles that some hatcheries, particularly those in or around rural and remote coastal communities, play in community economy and well-being. Some participants commented that the hatchery's reputation and the Responsible Aquaculture Association's reputation together shaped the relationship between the hatchery and the surrounding communities. Some participants involved in hatchery operations described intentionally employing locals as hatchery technicians and viewed the hatchery as integrated into the local community economy and social fabric, and as appreciated and supported by those communities due to that integration. However, some participants noted that this hatchery-community relationship may create vulnerability in places where local economies are heavily dependent on fishing fleets that target hatchery runs. Interview participants discussed how fish harvesters have, quote, bought bigger boats and built bigger houses, end quote, due to harvesting abundant hatchery runs, and fleets that would not have been economically viable prior to the hatchery program are now an economic center for some communities. Some remarked more specifically that hatchery-created abundance is now a social expectation and is now required to maintain the expected standard of living in hatchery-dependent fisheries and communities. This idea of being caught in a perpetual trap requiring constant production in the context of a changing environment was only briefly mentioned in our interviews. However, those participants who did address it expressed concerns about how difficult it would be to step away from the current system of hatchery production, both due to the perceived political popularity of the hatchery program and the perceived negative impact that a reduction in stocking would have on coastal communities. For example, one participant stated the following, quote, Yeah, there's no exit strategy from it. There's no drawdown. If we really have to go through a system where we have to dramatically reduce hatcheries, I mean, that's going to be—that's a huge industry. End quote. Finally, a key discussion that arose across interview groups was the notion of social, economic, and ecological trade-offs that are inherently made through the use of hatcheries. Though some participants focused on the need to understand the ecological trade-offs being made through hatchery use, some raised social and economic impacts as important trade-offs as well. Multiple interviewees made comments akin to, let's just be honest about the goals of hatcheries, or hatcheries aren't benefiting the environment, but they do make more fish. One point of agreement was that everyone wanted what is best for salmon, such as ongoing sustainability of salmon stocks. Unaddressed, however, was how to balance outcomes if what is best for the salmon creates economic and social hardship for fish harvesters or coastal communities. A process for determining how stakeholder and rights holder groups define best outcomes and how they should be balanced, such as scenario development, will be necessary for navigating these trade-offs. This is a point that we're going to come back to in the conclusion. Overall, the enhancement program was viewed by interview participants as firmly embedded in the Alaskan fisheries landscape. Hatchery and non-hatchery fish and their management were seen as intertwined, contrary to how wild and non-wild fish are described in hatchery policy language, with both playing an important role in provisioning economic and sociocultural value in Alaskan fisheries. Foundations of these attitudes may be rooted in ontologies of nature that situate humans as part of nature. Thus, human participation in fish cultivation is viewed as an extension of human-salmon relationships, rather than as interface with natural processes. Notably, however, some interviews did strongly hold the latter view. Inherent to perspectives of hatcheries and modern fisheries management being intertwined is an important question of intractability. Can the enhancement program, as it currently operates, be changed without creating significant social or ecological ramifications? The findings of this study indicate that the ramifications of change are unclear because the understanding of the ecological, social, and economic cost or benefit of the enhancement program, as it is today, is also unclear. Now I'll note here that um, though we combine the results in the discussion, this is the portion of the paper where we really start to get into some discussion and analysis. In addition to scenario development efforts, one way of offering clarity may be through the lens of social ecological traps. The Salmon Enhancement Program has grown significantly since its inception and individuals and communities have come to expect and rely upon hatchery runs. However, such scenarios have been shown to have strong risks associated with sudden ecological decline, and these risks are often overlooked, or perhaps unimagined, by stakeholders and managers. This raises a critical question. What can be done now to prepare for, or otherwise mitigate, such potential decline? As social ecological traps cannot be escaped by slow incremental change, and given that masking effects can impede social commitments to reversing the trap, strong participatory and adaptive govern- governance approaches will be required. However, it appears that media and study participant perceptions of hatcheries are impacted, and occasionally driven, by publicized events linked to hatcheries, such as poor performance of particular hatcheries, publicized accidents, or unusual strain occurrences linked to hatchery production. This is notable, as discursive, event-driven discourses around stalking can challenge the efficacy of participatory or adaptive governance approaches if allowed to escalate through discourse advocacy, media or social media, or other discourse arenas. This study also identifies other contributing factors to disagreement about the current state of the enhancement program. Attitudes of place-based exceptionalism, which arose in interviews and in Bordefish comments. Place-based exceptionalism might be described as a cousin of geographic narcissism, a concept borrowed from rural geography studies that describes valuing certain geographies as more valuable or important than others. In this case, place-based exceptionalism centers Alaska's environment and enhancement policy and practices as being fundamentally different from, and inherently better than, those found elsewhere, and thus as being somehow immune to or otherwise unaffected by the problems of enhancement programs in the lower 48 states or in other countries. These attitudes are noteworthy, as they could make research outcomes, such as preliminary results from the strain study, that demonstrate adverse impacts more difficult to accept and act upon through policy measures. Another noteworthy result of this study is how data and science were viewed in the decision-making process. The topic of ecological interactions with hatcheries was almost always raised at the forefront of interviews, whereas in Board of Fish comments, economic considerations were usually raised first. Both topics were often accompanied by various data metrics, which may indicate that stakeholders believe that conversations about fisheries management, especially when oriented toward fisheries managers, must always be led by data in order to be valid. This is important as the present study demonstrates that ecological considerations and market and non-market value are only two of many facets that underpin enhancement discussions in Alaska. This disconnect may also be a positive feedback loop that excludes other issues, where fisheries stakeholders focus on ecology and market value of hatcheries in the interactions with decision makers, such that hatchery research and management priorities are focused on those topics in response to perceived public interest, resulting in data being limited to ecological and economic topics from which stakeholders may draw when presenting their public views on hatchery matters. Data as a driver of scientific decision making is not surprising given ADF&G's commitment to using best available science. However, this study found that stakeholders held expectations for science to fully address complex questions around hatcheries, which may be indicative of two significant problems. First, these expectations may be unreasonable in terms of what scientific inquiry can accomplish and the time frame in which it can be accomplished. For example, some interviewees commented on the need to know the full carrying capacity of the Pacific Ocean before it could be decided whether hatchery-produced salmon were negatively impacting that ecosystem. Such a question would take untold resources from the scientific community to answer, and thus is an impractical or even impossible data point upon which to base management decisions. This disconnect between what is expected and what is achievable from Western science ways of knowing is a critical science policy juncture at which fisheries enhancement managers and policymakers are operating and should be cognizant of. Science unto itself is neither an autonomous nor perfectly objective process, and any scientific study or finding must be interpreted into policy through the inherently subjective lens of a person or people. This leads to our second problem. Expectations that the science will, unto itself, be instructive of how policy should be made will be disappointed if the limitations of the scientific process are not better articulated to the public. If failure to clarify the science policy interaction in in Alaska's Salmon Enhancement Program persists, this could lead to a stakeholder retraction of social license to operate. For those in the research and policymaking communities, this is a policy precipice on which the Enhancement Program may already stand. In a practical sense, this study shows that the connection between science, policymaking, and the politics of fish and fisheries is convoluted. Perhaps the most pressing example of this is the aforementioned 1974 legislative intent language that was intended to avoid adverse impact of hatcheries on non-hatchery stocks. Past legal precedent has established that the interpretation of a statute begins with an examination of its language, construed in light of its purpose, and that the Alaska Supreme Court has maintained its stance that in ascertaining the legislature's intent, the Supreme Court are obligated to avoid construing a statute in a way that leads to a glaringly absurd result. This language raises a key question. What does without adverse impact mean? Given the significant body of literature showing that hatchery breeding and rearing practices have a demonstrated impact on salmon, and given ongoing findings from ADF&G's strain study that demonstrate mixing between hatchery and non-hatchery-origin salmon, the it is reasonable to infer that hatchery-reared fish are having some kind of impact on non-hatchery salmon and their ecosystems. With that in mind, the pressing question then becomes, what does adverse mean to salmon stakeholders? And should the definition of adverse be limited to ecological considerations? We're getting to the last section now, looking forward, action and policy for the future. Alaska hatcheries are a linchpin in a complex and evolving social-ecological relationship between people and salmon, and the challenges identified within this study are those, thus both social and ecological, and are inex- inexorably linked together. Going forward, any policy solutions to these problems must address both sides of that relationship. In considering these challenges, and in line with our intentions behind this study, we offer a roadmap forward that lays out four steps, and critical considerations within each, that should be taken expediently to account for the social, economic, and ecological impacts of the SAM enhancement program now and in the future. In doing so, we note that this study is only a baseline for considering these issues, and that further human dimensions research, particularly research that includes and is respectful to indigenous perspectives and knowledge, is required. In the case of Ways Forward for Alaska's Salmon Enhancement Program, regional and state-level policymakers and decision-makers are, prim- are primarily in the driver's seat. Regional planning teams, which consist of adf personnel and regional association representatives, and are responsible for developing regional comprehensive salmon plans, ADF&G decision-makers and elected policymakers are the intended recipients of these recommendations. Next steps. Step 1. Establish a process to incorporate socio-cultural dimensions of hatcheries and stocking into enhancement program decision-making. Current policymaking and decision-making around the hatchery program formally account only for ecological and economic considerations, and current research is focused on relatively limited aspects of some ecological issues. Although this may be due, at least in part, to the positive feedback loop of public comment and policymaker response, the present study shows that the Board of Fish public comment process is not successfully capturing the breadth or depth of perspectives that currently exist in public discourse around the enhancement program. In short, presently there are no mechanisms for meaningfully considering the social components of Alaska's salmon enhancement program. Rectifying this lack of process must be a first priority within which the following steps may be embedded. This study indicates that there may already be erosion of some stakeholder trust in hatchery governance and research. If public trust in governance erodes, so too may the social license to stock Alaska's public waterways. As such, it is critical that the creation of this process be transparent, genuine in its state of objectives, and meaningfully participatory to the public throughout its lifespan in order to avoid creating conflict through an ineffective or poorly received top-down procedure. Step 2. Define Adverse Impacts Adverse impacts must be clearly defined and should give attention to matters of hatchery and non-hatchery fish interactions, social impacts of changes to the enhancement program, and future climate scenarios. Definitions should be developed through participatory research with salmon stakeholders and should extend beyond quantitative metrics in order to capture rich, complex understandings of this term. Given this study's evidence that social impacts of hatcheries are at the forefront of many stakeholders' minds, it is necessary that any definition of impacts takes into account social-ecological linkages between salmon and Alaskan society, particularly coastal communities. Put simply, the well-being of communities that, in whole or in part, depend on hatchery-origin salmon fisheries must be meaningfully included in how adverse impacts are defined. The results of this work will likely involve thinking outside existing paradigms of salmon management and perhaps revisiting the act authorizing private nonprofit salmon hatcheries, a pr- process that will likely be challenging across many fronts. We note that attention to clarify the genetics policy has already been called for by ADFNG, and we encourage such work to continue beyond genetic considerations. Step three link research findings and policy implications. At the time this study was conducted, neither the study participants nor any of the publications we could find pointed to clear policy processes or outcomes linked to potential or realized findings from the ADFNG strain study. This is of concern, as hatchery and stocking research programs could have significant policy implications and should be designed to link particular particular results to specific implications. In other words, the science policy gap should be explicitly attended to through clear, pre-established decision-making processes. This must be done at the outset of a project, or for existing work as soon as possible. If it is attempted after research results are released, then a politicized reactionary response driven by stakeholder groups comprehending results in different ways may escalate conflict in a way that no further amount of ecological data production can resolve. For cases in which studies are already underway, steps to convene a policy advisory committee to work in conjunction with those studies' existing scientific advisory boards or bodies should be taken immediately. Critical to this process will be the involvement of one or more knowledge brokers who would act as interfacing agents between knowledge producers and decision makers. A key consideration and challenge will also be how to adequately account for limitations to science. In other words, how to make policy decisions on issues where there will likely always be scientific uncertainty. As participants in this study demonstrated high expectations for the questions that scientific inquiry can answer, transparency from the scientific community, particularly ADF and G, about what knowledge is and is not reasonably obtainable, and what plans or processes exist to manage under that uncertainty will be key to maintaining public trust. Step 4. Plans for the future. Scenario development work around the impacts of of climate change on hatchery-origin salmon stocks and the downstream impacts of those stocks on non-hatchery stocks and fisheries should be undertaken as soon as possible. These scenarios should address both ecological and social outcomes, whether adverse or positive. Scenarios should also incorporate a range of potential management actions to address adverse impacts, as defined in Step 1 – ranging from no action to reduced release volume to cessation of the enhancement program. Risk perceptions of ecological and social interactions should be evaluated as a linked system and should acknowledge that coastal communities, fishing fleets, and fisheries managers who are heavily dependent on hatchery-produced runs may already be locked into social-ecological traps. Examples from the literature, which we list here in this section, can serve as examples of scenario development work from climate change and Alaskan fisheries contexts. And finally, a conclusion. Hatcheries and their associated stocking programs are complex intersections of social ecological fishery systems and must be managed proactively as such. Alaskan hatcheries have created billions of dollars in economic value over the history of their operation. In their current configuration, they are perceived to support the livelihoods that drive coastal communities around Alaska. Further, this study shows that hatcheries are perceived to support an important cultural relationship between humans and these fish through the provisioning of abundant fisheries resources. While the hatchery debate is still in an emergent phase in Alaska, it is at least partially centered on trade-offs between social and ecological factors and the regulatory and practical boundaries in which Alaskans must make such trades. In this case, the enhancement program may be best considered an enhancement program not only of salmon, but also of Alaska's economy, culture, and communities. Perspectives shared in this study indicate a desire for positive outcomes for both salmon and society as well as alignment between salmon enhancement policy and research. Taking appropriate and expedient steps to pragmatically understand the social and ecological outputs of Alaska's Salmon Enhancement Program and how they can be balanced in the changing social ecological systems of the near future must be a high priority for Alaska's fisheries and enhancement leadership. Thanks for listening to this reading of Big Catch Undecided Risks Perceptions of Risk, Reward, and Trade Offs in Alaska's Salmon Enhancement Program by authors Hannah L. Harrison and Julie Gould, published in the North American Fish Journal of Fisheries Management. To learn more about Pubcasts, visit the Coastal Roots Project website at www.coastalroots.org. That's Roots is spelled R O U T E S.org.